0: Content warning. Today's story includes racial slurs and depictions of sexual assault. Doing the Nasty with a Nigger Flicker and Slashing Rain by Ricardo Cortez Cruz Read by Mia Ellis. It is not a good night to be Clive. Rooster climbed the winding stair of a chocolate building in Compton with blood on his feet and the wooden door of apartment 3G hiding in the dark hallway like the insides of a television set. When the pitter-patter restarted, Rooster was on his tiptoes, sneaking around on a floor of hot picture tubes, glass and shit stinging the bottom of his heel, a wino watching him through a bottle of warm Canadian mist, melted nougat stuck to the sole of his feet. Blackout. It was very spooky, Rooster says. He is washing his big black hands and feet in the basin, wiping the blood away. He is talking about mamas and bent trees and funky storms and water babies falling and busting their heads on the sidewalk. Heroin and crack cocaine everywhere. He's got a box of candy stuffed inside his drawers like a price tag and cuts all over himself. He's got nicks and grooves on the side of his big head from living on the edge. Where you been? I ask him. My lipstick is smeared. On a motherfucking trip, he replies. I bet you have, I respond. He fingers a stack of books. I see his eyes searching. He slams Stephen King's misery back down on the coffee table and stares out the open window, down to the wet sidewalk, down the drain, down into a dive on the corner to get drunk, down into a hole where he fucks a street prostitute with the depth of his thoughts. He spies on her as she walks the thin line like a flat note in a musical composition. Her pimp is pointing at her singing Teddy's Jam. She pops Juicy Fruit, chewing gum, working the strip. She has big titties, he says, and watching her enlarges his brain. My little girl runs away. What's wrong, baby? He tells me his story. An auto wreck on Alameda Street, he says. Terrible accident, blood everywhere, ambulances descending on the scene like crows, puddles of blood like apples smashed on the street, people hollering everywhere, a black market, a Rolls Royce rammed into a tree, the ignition keys clean out in the middle of the street. Everybody screaming at a scarecrow hanging on the hubcap of a sewer hole, skin all around and all over the pavement like straw, women gagging, spit coming out like weed killer, Stevie Wonder at the corner. Real surreal shit, I tell him. But what does it mean? Somebody got fucked in a hit and run experience, he answers. Who got banged up? I ask him. Who got banged up? He pauses. A woman, I think. He is erect when he talks to me. I heard she was already knocked up before she got banged again. Did she have on clean underwear? I ask. I'm not sure, he replies. Then who did it, I ask. Who did it? He looks out the window, where the lights blink and snakes crawl on the tarred pavement. Blackout. Downed wires flood the street outside my apartment building. When I look out and down below, I see palm trees with perms. I see maple with a wet curl in her hair and sparks playing in it like struck matches. The leaves shake like barrettes. My bottom lip touches the taste of dewdrops as it hangs out over the ledge. No rain now. Water droplets rest on the cool surface, loose cigarettes scattered all around the area. I cannot see it, but I know there is a rainbow. It smells like raspberry lime orange sherbet as the air grows colder. Get out of the window, he says. Somebody might see you. I sit down on the bed and write with a number two pencil and pad. What's going on, I ask him. He walks over, gazing at my scribble. The lines are down, he says. How about the telephones? The telephones are down too, he answers. People are calling each other with empty tin cans from Greens. Nervous, I pinch the vein in his arm. Can't squeeze blood out of a turnip, I tell him. He cracks up. Blackout. The lights are blinking and it is driving us crazy. What's going on? I ask him. He puts his hand over the lampshade and taps it. As the lamp shakes, black and white alternate in the room like piano keys, his fingers playing death knocking on the door. There is the smell of more rain coming. Rooster sticks his big head back out the window to see what's happening. You can't stop the rain, he says. Loose ends. How does it look outside? I ask Rooster. Blackout, he says. His voice trickles through the room. A mere baby, I whisper. He pulls his head out of the window, turns, and stares. What? He asks. I was talking to my little girl. You trippin', he says. What you mean? I ask him. She is big as a house, and you got the nerve to be calling her a baby? He picks up another book and reads inside. Get out of my apartment. He seems stunned. He points to the text in his hands. Read this and tell me what you think, he says. It's a short story. Clive's name is penciled on the first page. What is this shit, he asks. Why don't you tell me, I reply. He circles the room, sugar babies dropping out of his underwear. He stomps them, squishing caramel in his own face. You killing them, I try to tell him. Big deal, he answers. He is a cold motherfucker and his hands are still wet. He touches my nipples with ice water. He's got a nigger flicker inside the elastic trim on his white briefs and is ready to do the nasty. He touches my nipples with ice. I lie down on the bed and push down my panties, my baby hiding in the bathroom. He grins and then drops his underwear and knife. We fuck and cuss and bang each other like cymbals crashing. He tries to tear me up so I would holler. He slaps me harder and harder on the edge, spreading my legs over the end of the bed and raising them toward the ceiling fan with the caked palm of his hands. Sometimes I cry. He fucks me while I smell the rain coming, but it is too late. I scream for him to stop. He strikes me like lightning, wiggling his black ass faster as it lays on top of me. Slow drops. Then, everything all at once. He did me good, but I asked for it. You can fuck your ass off, he says. He seems charged with energy. He moves through the room with no clothes on, semen dripping on the floor. We are talking weird shit here. I can't fucking explain it. Do you see my candy bar? Rooster asks. Describe it, I demand. It's a long, thick piece of hard dark chocolate, peanuts. He answers, shit. I crawl out of the bed with bare feet and tiptoe on the wet floor. Rooster says that he will not leave without his chocolate, so I lean over to check underneath the coffee table, desperately looking for Mr. Goodbar. He watches my nipples droop like bullets as I reach down, while the breeze from the window shoots through the room, blowing wrappers away and penetrating my undergarments. The storm tries to fuck me again. Take your candy and get the hell out of here, I yell. I feel moist air shooting between my legs as I bend over, rooster refusing to let me close the window. Quit, I scream. I take his chocolate and order him to put it into the shorts on the floor, but he just keeps pushing me. Take it, he insists. Your daughter has put her mouth on it. Why are you going off? I ask him. It's just a little piece of chocolate. An almond joy, he shouts. A mound, I say nonchalantly. A baby Ruth, a Butterfinger, a call it. Don't fuck with me, Rooster shouts. Rooster is clientele, so I try to understand him. Our relationship is based upon reciprocation. He empties his bank for me, and I give him what he wants. We do it behind Clive's back. Rooster is disturbed on the inside. He shows me the book again and asks if I have read it. I hope to be reading my own book one day, I tell him. He snatches the pad of paper and looks at my scribble again. You better learn how to use quotations before you go out and try to sell this shit, he says. He tosses the pad out the window. What's your problem? I ask him. How am I supposed to know? He asks. You're the expert on men. Why don't you tell me? He wants me to play doctor. We live in a throwaway society. I tell him, and when we throw away things, it hurts the people who are associated with them. He lies down on the couch, hanging his knees out over the arm, expecting more. I grab my pencil and another pad and sit on the bed next to him and the book on his stomach. He points to my vagina with his index finger but is looking at the walls around him. You've got big-ass room here, he says. He talks to me like I'm a whore. While he reads aloud, I rewrite the beginning of my book. It was Black Monday when Rooster came to me like a storm. He was mad, his mind stuck in sex. It rained all night. Rooster claimed he saw a two-car accident. One person was killed, he says. I let him get it out of habit and because I didn't know what else to do. No good, I mumble. I tear off the first sheet and throw it into the waste basket. Second draft, alcohol by my side. The distant rain smells like a lover. Women in Haiti with woven baskets over their heads, carrying loads of precipitation. Come back to Jamaica. I remember a commercial on television saying. I make a paper wad and lay it on the table. I ain't ready for that story yet. What the hell are you doing? Rooster asks. I'm talking to you. What do you want, Rooster? He is never satisfied. This story, with Clive penciled on the first page, has my girlfriend's name in it, he says. And what name is that? I ask, lackadaisically. Diana, he says. You know that my girlfriend's name is Diana. You act like you're jealous. Dirty Diana? Jealous of that black, skinny-ass bitch? Don't kid yourself. I got all I want from you. You got nothing, Rooster screams. Don't ever think that there's something between us, I tell Rooster, because there isn't. You're just a little black man shaking your booty all night long, says Rooster, before I can finish. I grab a bottle of alcohol off the table and get sloppy with a drink. He's right. When I look around, I see nothing. A couch with stains, a lampshade designed by Fingers Anonymous, a thin dark closet with an empty belly, etc. Snap out of it, bitch, Rooster yells. You ain't in Kansas. He cackles, stretching out below a hanging wall plaque that reads, Home Sweet Home. Then he thumbs through a rack of record albums. I love Janet Jackson he exclaims. Remember her from good times? She's got big titties and she's been showing more and more of them lately. So what's your point? I ask him. He looks at his thang and puts his underwear back on. I refill the glass with alcohol and set it on the coffee table. Shots of warm liquor drop down my throat like wounded swallows while I write some more. I am wishing that Rooster would touch in the morning and let that be his coup de grace. What we're doing is wrong, but it's the only thing that Rooster knows how to do. He gazes out into the blue rain. The rain is falling notes in a sad song. So many tears by Billie Holiday. Play Misty for me, Rooster begs. He's got a fist full of dollars in his black hand and is looking at me like I would do it for a few dollars more. What the hell are you talking about? I ask him. He has never asked me to play Misty for him before. Tell me again what happened between you and Clive, he demands. As I speak, he places the nigger flicker and a wad of money on the arm of the couch. It was a night similar to this, when Clive rode into town on his dogie and swept me off my feet. I tell Rooster, he, Clive, was LaRue then. He was stone cold. The boy knew how to make me laugh. We talked at a bar until sunrise, then I took him home and fucked him. He slapped me like a pair of blue jeans being washed on heavy stone. LaRue, you are the fastest gunslinger in the West. I told him, make it last forever. He couldn't, could he? Rooster asks, nope, I reply. Clive was embarrassed. He grabbed his dogie and galloped away. That's too bad, says Rooster, mimicking the three beat movement of the legendary LaRue. Yes, it was, I remarked to Rooster because two weeks later I found out that I was carrying a load. Was it Clive's? Rooster asks. Was it Clive's? Rooster knows the answer, but fakes like he hasn't heard the story before. No, it wasn't, I reply. It was from a previous relationship, but Clive thought it was his. Did you tell him that it wasn't his sucker? Rooster asks. He's got his feet on the couch as if my apartment were a saloon. I go on. I never told Clive about the baby. I answer. He thought he had fucked a virgin, not a dancing girl. Ah, this explains your affinity for hardcore music and your disgusting sensitivity to beatings. Rooster says, when you heard the pitter-patter going on outside your door, You opened the door to see if it was Clive coming back. Yes, nobody can do me like Clive, I answer. But he's scared. Right now he's too afraid to come back. It would have been nice, Rooster says. Then you wouldn't have had to open the door for me. You remind me of the story of Cain and Abel, I tell Rooster. One a lover, one a hater. What happened to the days when you and Clive were in the same gang? This is nothing but double talk, Rooster shouts. What makes you think that Clive is ever going to come back? You ask a good question, Rooster, a damn good question. I'm tired of talking about you, he says. Let's talk about me. What do you want to talk about, I ask. Diana, he says. This story says that Diana has lost her marbles within the crevices of modern society. Perhaps she intentionally dropped them, I reply, which would of course imply that they were not really lost, but rather casually let go. Perhaps there are too many choices here. Shut up, cracking jokes, before I slit your throat, Rooster screams. He is tripping, trying to figure out what Diana has done with her marbles. He looks up the word crevices, a narrow crack, fissure. This is an American heritage. History in general is but a collection of crimes, follies, and misfortunes, according to Voltaire. Fine definition, he says, except for one thing. He looks up the word fissure, a narrow crack, usually of considerable size. Rooster looks at me and stares in horror. Diana's been fucking with other people, not other men, but other people. It is a common occurrence in human society, but Rooster refuses to believe that she would do it to him. How much alcohol does it take for a woman to get drunk? He asks. It is not a good night. I can't finish. Rooster ignores me. He believes everything that he reads. It is obvious to him that something wild is going on. But perhaps there are too many choices here, so he goes over a few of them. Maybe he wasn't giving her enough and left her with no choice but to find it elsewhere. Perhaps when they went to Clive Nim's party together, he lost her and she was forced to take part in a group thing. Or maybe at the same party... She lost him and got mixed up in something that was over her head. He must decide which ones are true. He will call her. Plan A, he wants me to write it down. He will bluntly ask her if she's fucking with other people. If she says no, he will end it there. If she says yes, they will talk about it further over the phone. No, scratch that. He says, It's too lame. If she says yes, he will tell her to take her black ass over to his crib. That way they can discuss it face to face. Plan B, he will brutally fuck her until her crack widens and stays open like a V or the Grand Canyon. Wait, one choice too many here. Dis the V. He likes the Grand Canyon analogy better. You mean, canon? Don't you? I'm acting silly. Shut up, Rooster screams. Whatever you want, I answer. Get this down. Rooster tells me Diana's booty is like the Grand Canyon, and I'm going to pump it until it runs dry. What an imagination, I say. He grins. He likes the idea of giving it to her. Back to plan B. He will get it and then let Clive have her. They'll run a train on her. He grins. He pulls a black, broken steel caboose out of his shorts. Not the train, I tell Rooster. Why not? It's too terrible. We giggle, and he puts it back in his underpants. He continues with plan B until he finishes it. Then he wheels and stares at me. What do you think? He asks. How does she make you feel? I ask. I am referring to Dirty Diana. He tries to describe it. I can't put it into words. He tries to describe it again. When Diana and I are together, Rooster says, my heart is a singing bird. Then call Diana and tell her you still want it. I tell Rooster. I pick up the telephone and urge him to come and do it. He pushes me down on the bed and strips away my panties as if it were a will o the wisp blinding his eyes. Maybe this is why your girlfriend won't fuck you, Rooster. Rooster rises and grabs his head. The shit has to stop, I tell Rooster. Wait, he says. He skates along the floor. He appears glassy eyed while pointing his index in my face, ready to X me out. It takes action to get action, Rooster shouts. True, but this is not by any means necessary, I yell. Rooster looks the other way. Talk to me, Rooster. When a mental patient is troubled, doctors urge the patient victim to talk the problem out. Rooster decides to cooperate. I'm in a horror house, he says, and a hoe is trying to tell me what to do with my life. No, scratch that. If I call you a hoe, it makes me look bad. Plus, it sounds derogatory. Rooster cuts the rug, picks up a couple of dusty records, and throws them toward the turntable. He tries to remix his speech. I'm in a horror house, and one of the women is trying to tell me what to do with my life. She's got a half-empty glass of alcohol on the coffee table. She's got a pack of cool chillin' on the side of a square ashtray, two cigarettes with rosy lipstick on their butts, another cig caught in her fingers. She scratches her leg and flicks ashes off onto the floor. Pay no attention to the people in the street shoutin' fuck it, she says. Then she tells me that she let some of my buddies do her. This ruins it all, now I know that her titties have been felt on. You got metaphorical on me, I tell Rooster. I'm blowing up, he replies, his head is a hot air balloon that keeps rising. Titties, Rooster, I don't like that word, titties. He looks at me like, who asked you? You'll have to do better than that, I tell him. I'm the boss here, you're just a whore living large, he yells. (sighs) Rooster is where the wild things are, he gnashes his terrible teeth. Don't try to intimidate me, I shout. I am strong. I am invincible. I am woman. I am playing old music on the turntable. Helen Reddy is out, Rooster shouts. He snatches the record and tosses it out the window. People shout, fuck you, from the street. He walks over to the window and pops his head out into the rain. Kiss my black ass, he shouts. This is what deviant behavior looks like. An iceberg, an ass bending over, the top sticking out where people can see it, but everything else, secret. Rooster turns back around and wonders if he said the right thing. He could have told them to go jump in a lake, but there are no lakes in Compton. Maybe it would have been better if he had yelled, fuck you too. Maybe he talks too much. He cracks up thinking about it. I pick up the telephone and hand it to him. Call her and tell her that you still want it. He dials her number. She answers the phone on the fifth ring. He was so close to hanging up. A long pause, static, as if the connection is to Long Beach. Hello, Diana, he says. I can hear you breathing. I dash to the bathroom to find my baby and come back out to discover him holding the receiver against his chest and whispering. She won't talk to me, he says. Tell her you love her, I mutter. You think I'm crazy? You think I'm stupid? He gives me two very difficult questions to answer. I gaze inside my glass and search for a crystal clear response. Meantime, he trembles like an ice cube floating in hot water. Tell her that you love her, I say. He hesitates to do it. He wants more options. She won't believe me, he argues. Your chances are slim, I admit. That's because she has a little ass, he says. She knows what you're about, Rooster. Cane, coke, cocaine, says Rooster. Raising cane. He puts the receiver back on his ear. I hear you breathing, Diana. Talk to me. The phone is dead, says Rooster. It is not Rooster's day. If he dies today, his epitaph will read, here lies Rooster, a dumb ass fucker. This is what he seems to be thinking. Diana, say something, or I'm going to hang up. He frets, translation. The phone is dead and Dirty Diana has gone to the funeral. Talk to me! Rooster begs. Speculation Diana has buried the telephone. He rigs an explosive statement Diana, get your ass on the damn phone and hang up! Prediction He's gonna find out why I call her Dirty Diana. We both hear a click. It figures she would take that option, Rooster says. He hangs up the receiver and then dials again. How far is Long Beach, he asks. Ye of little faith, I reply. Diana answers on the second ring. I need you, Diana, Rooster whispers into the receiver. I can look at his horrid face and tell that he is talking about doing the nasty. He grins and pulls the caboose out of his shorts. No, she screams. It's as if she's seen his caboose before. He looks at me like, what the hell should I do? Well, there is a knock on the door. Rooster is jumpy, awfully jumpy, wondering who it might be. He tries to tell me all the possibilities, the cops, his daddy, Clive. Could be, I tell him. Which one, he asks. All of them, and throw in your mama too, I answer. While he ducks down to the floor, I stroll past the arm of the couch and open the door. A sleazy-looking white woman stands in the hallway with a cigarette in her mouth. I'm looking for the man who said kiss my black ass. Get the fuck out of here, I whisper. Then I slam the door. A relieved rooster is back on the phone, talking rhetoric. Baby, you're the only one for me, rooster tells Dirty Diana. And then he hears another click. Rooster looks at me like I did it. Don't you ever talk about my mama again, he shouts. Rooster struts over to the door and opens it. I've got to go, he says. I've got something else to do. Wait, I scream to Rooster. I've got something to give you. I waltz over to Rooster and give him a few kisses, then slice the side of his belly with his own nigger flicker. I push him out of the door and into the dark hallway. With the door of apartment 3G closed and locked, I hear Rooster run away, tapping the boards under his feet like rain. I look out the window and down to the street to find him. In nothing but an off-white pair of fruit of the loom, Rooster looks like a partially deflated automobile tire bouncing on the pavement. He plays hopscotch in reggae splash along the sidewalk, graffiti and shit under his feet. He sees me in the window. One, two, three, crack. Rooster yells, one, two, three, crack. He runs over a garbage can and straight down Alameda Street, where children jump rope and repairmen are everywhere. You're listening to Fiction Transmission a project of Fiction Collective 2. FC2 is a non-profit author-run publisher of Innovative Fiction, a literary alternative since 1974. Every week, we bring you a story and a conversation. You just heard Doing the Nasty with a Nigger Flicker and Slashing Rain by Ricardo Cortez Cruz from his book Straight Out of Compton, published by FC2 in 1991. Next, Ricardo is joined by poet Douglas Manuel, author of Testify, for a conversation across the cosmic distance of isolation.
1: respect dude my dear brother reading your story lord have mercy it felt like came but like modernized dropped me right in like goodness gracious you hit me in the chest with that
2: thank you so much yeah you know i was gonna say to just start with i i know i was asking about mia and uh mm-hmm. and i so appreciate i thought she did a, a phenomenal job in reading that you know and and i was trying to actually read my own text along with her as we got going as as i mm-hmm. heard the as I heard the reading and then I just sort of stopped and started listening to her. Right. But uh, the agency that I think she gave the narrator and, mm-hmm. um, and also even, I think, uh, in addition to that, I noticed I found myself just hanging on to every word of the text, mm-hmm. you know, when I was yes. listening to the reading. And it struck me that uh, Yes. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, no, and I can feel that on your in your writing, you know, like I'm thinking of Coleridge's, you know, adage, like the right words in the right order, that that's what poetry is. And, you know, one of the things that I think where we can get started just to jump in is just the level of repetition that happens in this uh, text and how much musicality you get. Like you work so much anaphora, so much parallelism, like it's yeah. just really, really beautiful on the page. And I think that kind of syntactical uh, grace juxtaposed with the gritty, Vivid descriptions is just everything to me. I love it so much. So could you tell me a little bit, you know, about like just influences? Oftentimes I talk about that like my first book testify like is more influenced by Naz's illmatic than something, you know, in our western canon. and i mm-hmm. and I can smell that in this text as well. but even, deeper roots in that. Like, I think you're probably like a, a little bit older to me of my brother's generation. You know what I mean? And mm-hmm. like, I just know that that America that y'all dealt with, I mean, our America right now is so problematic, but goodness, like to be a black right. man during the time for y'all, like my brother lets me know. And so if you could just kind of cue me in on like, uh, how you, how you found that voice and tapped into this vernacular, into this, uh, to make this rap novella, it has a lot of people have said about this.
2: Yeah. Thank you. Uh, you know, I I went to you know, I'll start by saying I went to an all-white grade school, an elementary school. And so you yeah, you know, mm-hmm. just kind of, I figure we have a lot in common actually. I, I think, can smell you know. it too. Yes.
1: Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm from Indiana, by the way. Yeah. So like I'm also yeah. a Midwest cat. So yeah, yeah. No.
2: Yeah, yeah. So I think I think for me when I was growing up and I know I know you mentioned before that your father was a DJ. And yes. uh, I grew up in a household that was very much into music as well, you know. And so my father would build, he built his own speakers with subwoofers and, and all of that stuff. And he was the person that oftentimes brought in the new sounds and things like that. And then my brother, my older brother, kind of picked up on that and did the same thing. So my first exposure, you know, I, we were buying those um, 12-inch records that were Def Jam labels mm-hmm. and Jive. And, wow. uh, you know, Profile Pro- Records. Yeah, and probably Ruckus too, right? Right,
1: <laughs> that's yes. right. Yes, <laughs> yep, Ruckus so, Records. Yep. So,
2: And this was after, of course, listening to my father play, like, the Isley Brothers, you know, Take Me to the Next Phase, Fight the Power, all mm-hmm. of that stuff. James Brown, of course, on Polidor. Mm-hmm. you know, all of that stuff we were listening to. So... For me, a lot of voice was I think, but I grew up in Decatur, Illinois. So even though I was going to this uh, elementary, all-white elementary school, all my friends were still black. Most of them were still black in many ways, you know. And and I fought a lot in school. You know, kids would uh-huh. call me the N-word, and uh-huh. and you know I'd be fighting them all the time and going at it. And then as soon as I left school be hanging out with the, you know, with the fellas playing basketball or, mm-hmm. uh, you know, doing this or that. And and also, I should say, I grew up in the park era when, uh, you know, recreational parks yes. outside was the thing. So yep. when hip hop was coming into being, we would walk, we'd be walking to a park and maybe hear from three blocks down the road, Planet Rock um, yep. being played by a yep. DJ <laughs> in the park yeah <laughs> get, get the pops going get them pops going <laughs> that's right that's right you know? <laughs> That's so, what's up. so for me a lot of that was like Decatur cater uh culture all the people around me and kind of growing up that way um my parents also just kind of keeping it real inside the house you know like mm-hmm. they were they were just who they were and It was like, I couldn't be anything different because they wouldn't allow it, you know, in some sense. But but I think just a lot. So a lot of my just starting to think about language, starting to think about culture comes from my thinking about family, the people around me, music, um, you know, a lot probably from music, you know, in some Mm -hmm. ways. And then just the things that the ways in which music also brought me together with other people, you Mm. know, whether it was through uh, house parties or through outside park recreational DJ jamming, you know, right by the basketball courts. Right. (laughs) Always. Right. That's right. You know, and it was all those kind of come together spaces that got Mm -hmm. me. I think really thinking about language and, and that sort of thing, you know? And so I was always interested in just kind of playing around with voice, um, you know, and with my own voice, trying to figure out ways to represent the complexity of my own voice, you know? And uh, And I think I'm still working on that project, how to represent the complexity of my own voice. You know, the ways in which I switch language in different directions mm-hmm. and that sort of thing. Uh, the fact that I am probably multilingual, you know, in that yes. sense, um, and how do I represent? Also, that I could be saying one thing and thinking another, you know, mm-hmm. all of those sorts of things. I, I thought, you know, I've got to find a way to work with, you know.
1: No, that's good. No, you got me uh, many places and thinking about a whole bunch of stuff. Because I mean, here, like, what it sounds to me is that you heard so many levels of addiction all the time, and a lot of your work and finding your voice is negotiating all those registers of addiction and trying to like, kind of, um, find the right vessel for them. And I, and yes. I see that happening on the page. Um, I'm wondering about like, you know, just influences. Cause this feels so raw yeah. and fresh and especially for the novella. Like I was thinking of Kane. Um, mm-hmm. and then I was also thinking of just like all the kind of work by like, you know, like white boy shuffle and stuff by Paul Beattie and stuff like that, that voice. Cause it's, I mean, this is, I was even thinking of like almost Bukowski, like the way we're dropped in. You know, I know he's a, such a problematic, toxic white male figure, you know, just exuding right. toxic uh, white uh, white male masculinity. But at right. the same time, just the way this says it was a bad night and like that that first sentence. It made me think of, you know, post office, you know, uh, it, it all began as a mistake. Like it's just right. such a good first sentence in this selection that I got because you you give yourself so much Um, um you throw um. You do yourself so much justice because then we got to figure out, like, why was it so bad? It's just such a great way to drop us in. So I was just wondering, you know, like, like, where was the blueprint? Was there a blueprint uh, for this that you could, you know, kind of sample and then remix uh, going this way and entering this text in this fashion?
2: That is such a tough question for me, too, because I always say, you know, I'm like a confluence of influences. Mm. And and so, you know, I take all this stuff in and then I don't know how it's going to be spat out you know, in that way. Right. So, so it's, in some ways, it's a really tough question for me to answer. But I know that, um, you know, obviously I did my master's thesis on Ishmael Reed, um, actually. So, well, I did a critical <sighs> chapter, I should say. I did a creative uh, mm-hmm. thesis, but I did a critical chapter for that thesis on Ishmael Reed, really. Uh, nice, on Idaho, which one? Writing, fighting. Uh, well, mm-hmm. I kind of took, really, I focused in on, I was thinking about, I was trying to argue for the creation of a new Black avant-garde aesthetic. And so I looked into Ishmael Reed as kind of a jumping off point because there there were a lot of things I liked about Ishmael Reed, like sometimes the creation of myth, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, the working of voices and that, Mm -hmm. uh, sort of the stories that were spun. I liked a lot of Ishmael Reed, but what I wanted was something that didn't feel... that was still aggressive, but that was still fighting in some ways, but didn't feel as opposition. That felt like it was doing more of its own thing, (laughs) you know? Yeah, no, I hear you. Because I think sometimes, you know, and of course him
1: being um, uh, kind of one of the last generations of of BAM, of the Black Arts Movement, but just like so much of the identity was based off opposition and off punching back to sometimes you're swinging so much that uh, perhaps that you... um, didn't land as many punches as you threw. And I think right. when you throw that many, you know, you lose so much with accuracy. So I can totally feel that, even though of course, you know, he's the ultimate OG and an OG so say something, <laughs> yeah. you gotta uh, listen. Yeah. Oh, but,
2: absolutely, absolutely. But, yeah. but I do
1: feel you about that, about like uh, having that same level of anger, aggression, and that same harshness of the language, but then not necessarily just so defiant or such a, uh, dare I say, like a F you up.
2: Yeah, yeah, you know, mm-hmm. I mean, yeah, absolutely, I'm glad you said because absolutely the OG, I, I'm sure I would not have done an entire critical chapter on this movie or if he weren't the OG in that sense. and, mm-hmm. um, and I was of course through the roof. you know, I picked the right year when I um, um, submitted straight out of Compton for the nylon contest because Clarence Major was judging that year. So I was through the roof to have mm-hmm. Clarence Major. Uh, You know, looking at this book and the things that he said and and how he talked about the book was really about a quest for love. I thought, you know, he did me justice, you know, not that I was surprised, but, you know, he Mm -hmm. did me justice. And so but then other texts that I think I read, I mean, you're 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 right, I think, with Tumor's Cain. You know, that would that would probably that, that's be- what
1: my critical work is on Cain. So it's also fresh on the mind, like my dissertation's yeah. all on Cain. So I'm sorry if that's pushed on you, but like no, that no. Cain, tumors way in my head right now. Um, yeah. And so when I was reading through this again, like just some of the hyper real moments where you really can't tell the stakes of what's happening. And if it's like if I'm really supposed to be li- reading this literal or not. Feel very much so like those kind of moments in Kane. Like I- I'm thinking of uh, of when uh, Rooster's looking out the window uh, with erection and looking back, but then also Bud butt- booty naked. Like like where you just can't really like again get your footing in the scene. You know that you're there, but then it's like, is this happening in front of me like this? Is it for real? Is yeah. it for real? For real? <laughs> like it's so crazy,
2: man. It's really intense. It's really intense. Seriously. Thank you. You know, and and of course when I was writing, then there was the And I think because of the culture at the time, it had a lot of us writers kind of thinking about, you know, these questions of what it means to be Black and and the ways in which we took it into these kind of avant-garde routes. You know, there was Mm -hmm. uh, Darius James did Negrophobia right at that time. Trey Ellis was doing stuff, of course, like Mm -hmm. platitudes and so on. Jess Maury, way past cool. Uh, You know, that I think we were like mentioned in the same review together. You know, so there was a lot of, you know, I think writers starting to look into, you know, that matter. So that was probably significant to me as well, like just what was going on at the times, you know. But then also, you know, probably for me too, I, I'm sure that music I was listening to had an effect on me, you know, listening to, mm-hmm. uh, you know, George Clinton, you know, and uh, my wanting to, like, how could I kind of be funky? in some senses, you know, and, uh, you know, and I, and, you know, the Midwest, of course, is a good hub for funk music. And that had always been an influence on me too, you know, uh, because I was listening to Slave and all of that stuff. And so, you know, so I just think a lot of that was coming out in my work, but also Mm -hmm. um, probably some other writers that I know I'm influenced by, you know, probably wouldn't be weird for you, for you to hear me say this, but for some it's weird for me to say this that a writer like Tony K. Bambera was, Hmm. I think, uh, a big influence for me because I liked her thinking about community and like how to try to and be conscious of reaching out to community. And that Mm -hmm. always meant something to me. And then I read like The Salt Eaters, the novel, and I remember the beginning of the novel early on if not at the very beginning, it was like, are you sure you want to be well? And, uh, you know, the character asked the other character and I liked how that just launched everything, you know, in Mm. there. Um, but I also read a lot of poets, you know, and so I can tell, no, I can tell,
1: (laughs) I mean, language, I mean, at the, at even the syllabic level, like you can tell that you have taken care of this piece. Like, it is such yeah. an act of love when it comes to craft. Like, um, I'm also thinking of Justin Torres as We the Animals, like mm-hmm. just these tight, tight novellas that, like, literally almost feel uh l- like a prose poem elongated. Very similar, again, to Go Back to Tumor. And, mm-hmm. and I'm really interested in this idea of community that you keep on coming back to, because it also does, it just does feel so insular and so of Compton for you to be Midwest like I got it like you know now that I stay out here I mean I literally stay in Long Beach now LBC throw it up like I'm like I'm <laughs> like I'm right across the street from the, from the Roscoe's like that's wow. how Long Beach I am right now wow. uh, literally and so um I let's talk a little bit about that like how did you limb this Compton how did you see this mm. Compton because I'm, I'm I remember that um uh what was that movie uh was it Deuces I think it was about like Compton uh, like and it was like that gang movie in, in the late 80s Um, And I remember that one. And then, of course, like Boys in the Hood and such like that. But so I know that the West Coast was on all of our minds, even has like six and seven. Like, I remember, like I tell my partner now that I wanted to live out here. Right. being young, you know, like, like seeing Snoop and Dre and everything in the video. Like I was like, yeah.
2: wow, the West I'm Coast. so, I'm so envious of YouTube.
1: <laughs> <laughs> so how did, how did you know you up in Decatur? How did you yeah. make Compton that real for us? How did you, you know, make Compton that real I for had, us, my brother? I,
2: well, you know, I had friends that lived out. Uh, I had people that actually lived in Decatur and moved out to California and yep. were in Compton or, uh, it, you know, surrounding areas and so on. So I would go out and visit, you know, and -hmm. and that got me thinking about wanting to write about it. I think I was too, I felt like I was too close to Decatur to write about Decatur, you know, Mm -hmm. and I wanted to really write, write about what to me was um, not necessarily even just completely the physical space of Compton, but Mm -hmm. my thinking about the ways in which Compton and Decatur converge, you know, and you know, it was that. Every you know, hood is one hood. You feel me? That's Every right. hood is one hood. Yeah, I hear you. I hear mm-hmm. you totally on that. That's exactly what it is. And and so mm-hmm. I would always say that, you know, that it was more that metaphorical place in some ways that, you know, I could feel as a black person, you know, mm-hmm. and, um, and that Decatur always had me thinking about, you know, and even when I went to Compton, it was like, oh, yeah, OK, a little more dangerous, maybe. But um, you know, and there's other things going on, maybe, but I can't say it's that I don't feel different, you know. Yep. From it reminds me of that Jay-Z line.
1: Uh, he says, I'm good on any MLK Boulevard. You feel yeah. me? Like, like people like us, I'm good on any MLK Boulevard. Like, you <laughs> yeah. know, like I'll be all right there. I feel you, bro. I feel That's you. That's right.
2: That's right, you know, and I was like, Yeah, you know, we, we don't have the lemon trees and, and mm-hmm. all of that, but you know, we have things that are like lemon trees to me, you know, that are, you know, that I still can can feel that and see that. And so so I, I think that for me was just like, you know, so, so part of it was also just, I think for me, having seen the physical place, but leaving enough room for my imagination to kind of fill in the gaps, you know, mm. which I think is always important to do as a writer is to not just, you know, I didn't want to be writing about what I know, I wanted to be writing about also these things that I wanted to discover and know more about mm. as well, you know, and I wanted to feel free in the writing, you know. And I know I say freedom and talk about that because I know that's something that I think, you know, I sense you value a lot as well, you know, because yes, I know you yes. talked about the tension, you know, sometimes the things that impose uh, upon mm-hmm. us as writers. You know? yeah, I mean, I
1: have a line that I say I don't want to be leashed to only reading this poem on Martin Luther King Boulevard right. um, to where, you know, I, I want the audience to go more, th- uh, to go further than that. Um, and so I, I really value that word freedom and like that, like you were able to use the imagination to discover that room for discovery. I think that's one of the things, you know, Frost has that beautiful line that uh, uh, no surprise in the uh, writer, no surprise in the reader, no tears in a writer, no tears in the reader. And I think, you know, having that level of discovery like that is is way rad, man. Much respect to you. Um, you. Look, looking down, I, I'm really interested in this idea, now being selfish again, because uh, my scholarship is on this as well, but like of this idea of you being in like this uh, new black avant-garde, or at least trying to uh, follow uh, maybe the lead or the door that people like Ishmael Reed left open, because that's a discussion that a lot of people in my circles are having a lot about um we're we're kind of clapping back and saying that like the black aesthetic has always been the avant-garde that yeah. we've always been uh kind of um set uh like things that people say are avant-garde that white folks win awards for, black folks just do, and nobody gives props. Like, for instance, um, eschewing no- notions of grammar, right? Like, if mm-hmm. if a white writer does that and then writes with dialect, they're genius. If a black yeah. writer does that, do they have control over the English language? Can they really uh, uh, just feel unruly, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera? So, just so many things mm-hmm. that we say are avant-garde. We're just already innately black. You feel me? Yeah. So, like yeah. uh, a lot. Uh, what I've been wondering about. Is like it almost kind of feels like um almost redundant to say like that I'm a black avant garde writer because like That's we true. always been avant garde. Like even our our, our coddling together of, of English language to make the black vernacular is an avant garde gesture. You know what I mean? So what what kind of thoughts do you have on, on that kind of uh uh talk as far yeah. as like where you position yourself aesthetically?
2: I think that you know, first of all, the, I think you make an excellent point. You know, and I and I'm glad you made that point because. I think I think that um I I think that you're right. I mean I would say at the same thing I totally agree with you that I think you know we've always been doing those things in many ways. So maybe mm-hmm. now that you've said that I might mean uh that I want to make sure that people know it's okay to be a black avant garde you know, <laughs> that nice. you know that that maybe is my true purpose or goal is, is to make people feel more comfortable that they can do that because I think we're in a society and we've always been in some ways, a culture that constantly pushes you, as you noted, to do something else, you know, Mm -hmm. almost, you know, and in some senses, you know, I think because I think the things that we do with language, uh, what we do with voice, musicality, Mm -hmm. we have in our work, the rhythm and the blues and all of that stuff. The fact that that comes easy for us as black artists, in some ways, I almost feel like it's, um, you know, that we're all along the way discouraged from doing that, you know.
1: Um, so you real, know. so
2: and, and I, I say that to my
1: master's students all the time. That most of, at least the way that when I got my MFA, a lot of it was trying to almost blanch my Black voice out of me.
2: Yeah, yeah. So yeah. much of it, you know. Did you have a yeah. similar experience to it? I, I did. and And I'm so glad in some ways I stuck with it. But when I was in my, um, and I went to school, I went to undergraduate uh, school and graduate studies at Illinois State University. So basically, I'm an Illinois, I'm like a lifer at Illinois. So just right around the way, you just (laughs) went (laughs) right away. (laughs) Yeah, when I was in that space, that happened a lot. And I just Mm -hmm. kind of stuck to what I was doing. But I remember feeling very much like the minority, you know, in that space, you know, Mm -hmm. and uh, it was uncomfortable in many ways. I had people ask me, why am I so angry? Uh, Why am I so violent? Uh, They didn't understand the language. Why are Um, your stories so dark, right? That's that's the other thing. Why are they so hopeless? Like, they always want
1: us to redeem them with our stories. That's right. That's right. You know? Where's the redemption? They ask that that of minoritized writers all the time. Never of white writers, though, right?
2: Like, hardly ever. Yeah, I agree. I totally hear you on that. And I know what you're saying because I felt that conflict a lot, you know, that Mm -hmm. tension a lot. And then I just decided, hey, I love using language, you know, I love like Black poets, you know, that was Mm -hmm. just me. You know, I mean, probably the first stuff that I started reading in a literary sense was Black poetry, you know, and even before fiction. And even that's probably true today that I tend to read more poetry than even fiction. You know, and I think it's just because I loved black voices, <laughs> you know, and, and I felt the diversity of them in the poetry, you know, and it was a quick way for me to not easy, but a quick way for me to get, mm-hmm. you know, a sense of the diversity of this community that I that I so believed, in. you know, and, uh, you know, and I would just like poem after poem after poem. I was like, yeah, I, I love this. I love this. I love that. I mean, I and I remember like two poems in particular, like Nikki Giovanni's poem, Adulthood, was oh, one yeah. that really spoke to me. Um, and then also Mari Evans poem when she talked about I am going to rise in mass. And, uh, you know, yes, yeah, and yes. So I was like, oh, yeah, I'm all in on that, you know, just, mm-hmm. just totally. And so those were like the kind of connect to questions. Those were like influences, you know, for me, too, that I think also encouraged me to keep my voice. You know, and to keep doing what I was doing, you know, because I could see, I was seeing, you know, those poets and writers being successful with what they were doing that way too. It's like they had opened the door for me, you know. And then, and then I remember right after I wrote straight out of Compton and published it as a book, um, I did a couple radio interviews one of the radio interviews I did that was just a lasting impression for me was I did an interview with Wanda Coleman and Austin Strauss and Wanda Coleman was the bomb.
1: Oh goodness. uh, Oh, I mean, I never got to meet her. She literally passed the year I got out here. So I Uh never got to meet her. Um, but my goodness do, I just love so much of everything that she's done here. (laughs) Like seriously, she's just such a force. Like how was that? How was being in her presence? Was she the, um, fire hose of information that everybody
2: says. Absolutely. And I I felt so uh, humbled and yet, you know, she was so generous and Mm -hmm. and just the many ways in which she kind of um, was a caretaker in some ways of my, uh, of my work, you know, or the the ways in which she kind of cared for the work that I was doing. Mm -hmm. Uh, You know, she was just, um, you know, so it was, it was just amazing because she was just um, smart, brilliant, funny uh, you know, um, mm-hmm. um, you know, and it was just genius, I think in many ways. And, uh, you know, we talked about language and sound and, uh, you know, she, uh, also did not like skirt asking me the tough questions about that book as well. You right? Know? And yet through all of that, like, I felt like she was giving me a big embrace or a hug you know, and um, I can see it. I can yeah, see it. It was just, it was just amazing. It was really an amazing experience. And that left a lasting, I think, kind of impression on me as well. You know, I, I, I was already in love with her work and mm-hmm. her story, you know, her whole life story in some ways, there's mm-hmm. uh, so much there that's so powerful. Mm-hmm. Um, but um, so anyway, That's just another one of those moments or influences and talking about it. And and now that I'm talking to you, Doug, as a poet, I thought one thing you probably because when I was listening to Mia reading of uh, of the piece, I was like, Mm -hmm. oh, my goodness. I do have a lot of similes. I love similes too. Yes, you know? yes, no, tons of thousands. They might kill me on this on the similes on the overuse here. <laughs>
1: oh no, not at all. I mean, one of the things that I think you know that's cool about simile is you know it's it's a, it's a lighter touch. You know, like like the metaphor like begs the colli- collision. So I like the simile because it's just like it insinuates instead of just forces the comparison. And I yeah. think what's so cool about your similes in this story is that they all go back to grittiness and all go back to violence. Like, yeah. one that I particularly remember is, uh, I think that you say somebody's, uh, that you say that her nipples, the speaker's nipples are like uh, uh, bullet tips. Right. And, like, I was like, this brother, where did they find this brother? <laughs> like, that is amazing. So, like, there are, like, you're right, it's laden with similes, but all of them build this very, very cool image system that all goes back to the gully, violent nature. Like, it's like a great example, you know, of Elliot's idea of like objective correlative. Like, it's just like so perfect the way they like, it matches the
2: mood. One other quick thing about the similes, like for me, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. that um, I'm always, I think, trying to also work on what is my theory about, like, what I'm, you know, what's the theory behind what I'm doing and trying to accomplish with something. I think with the similes, I also see that as a way of getting people to sense that my characters are trying, you know, in some senses. Oh, because so,
1: similes are less certain than yeah, metaphor.
2: Right, you know.
1: And, oh, that's a teachable moment, bro. I'm sure you've told <laughs> the students that. That's really yeah, nice. Similes yeah. are less certain.
2: Yeah. Stealing you know, that from you, bro. That's so, <laughs> nice. Yeah. Thank
1: you. And so I think, um, you know, hearing you talk about Wanda, hearing you talk about Nikki and, 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 and Mary and, and, and hearing you talk about loving, I, I'm, I love that we got this quote that I love black voices. And so it got me thinking of and I think this might be getting close to a hard question that maybe Wanda would ask you is just like stepping into the female interiority like you do Mm -hmm. as a speaker for this. And then having her be in a horror house and have her talk about her sexuality and um, having sex in this way and having the child in and out of the scene. So um, oftentimes, you know, one of my big fears with testify is that I was going to show white folks. The America that they know about black folks and just show them that again with no nuance mm-hmm. like you already know like that people were crackheads like the way that my daddy was and, and selling rocks the way that my daddy and my brother like all I'm doing is showing white folks what they already thought about us did you have those kind of fears as far as like displaying the black female body in that way especially like again my brother's 12 years older than me so I think he might be about your age like this is when y'all had on the African medallions and saying my queen and was kicking the Nubian, and then like so to put her in that space and then also you're all in her interiority in beautiful beautiful ways that is like really really cool so i just wondered um if you could talk about uh that choice to step into the female interiority the voice and then also um were you were you a little shook because i think nowadays a lot of contemporary writers would be like i don't know if i'm gonna go interiority like definitely the character there but to go that deep and then again the juxtaposition yes you give her tons of agency but then where she where she is like um the dimensions of her personhood, everything around her are so um abusively stereotypical of that time. So yeah. I was just wondering about those kind of things. Even though, I don't think she's a stereotypical character. Don't get it twisted at all. But she, I meant like her circumstances around her.
2: Well, and clearly, you know, there are those moments and arguably many moments where I do, I think, hyper sexualize her, you know, and mm-hmm. and and obviously. I think those are things that, yeah, I mean, I'd be lying if I said I um, that I wasn't worried about that or wasn't worried about maybe reinforcing or reiterating, you know, what, what people already think or how they perceive black women. And mm-hmm. so I definitely thought a lot about that. And sometimes I, I will hear from people who read the book something that tends to make me feel a little squirmy or uh, mm-hmm. wiggly or whatever when I hear someone say something that may seem to indicate But that's all they got from the book was, Mm -hmm. you know, this sort of uh, reinforcement of black women as being uh, um, hypersexual, you know, beings Mm -hmm. and -hmm. that sort of thing. And so, yeah, so that's definitely, I think, a concern, you know, Um, I'm hoping what overrides that is one, my willingness to be uncompromising and exploring all characters and, you know, and all people you know, coming from all walks of life, you mm-hmm. know, in that way, that I'm hoping that that's a that that's one of the things that that um that I think is also important to pick up on there. And then mm-hmm. I think the other thing is is that my, you know, I think what's not depicted enough about, about black women is their ability to fight no matter what situation they find themselves in. Yep. And it's kind of like when Angela Davis has said not enough credit was given to black women in the role of resistance during the days of slavery. You know, And so mm-hmm. just because you're in these bad situations or, you know, moments or scenes or whatever I want to call them, um, I'm also hoping to kind of convey that that emerging spirit of fight as well. And you you let her speak. I mean, like, um, did you, like, it's all of her words, like,
1: and from her, like, not only do you give her, uh, uh, well, not even give her voice, because it's not as though black women need to be given a voice, but you let her speak, you listen to her, you center, there it is, that's what I needed, you center her voice, you center her voice, and I think that that's really important. And I'm also, again, I, I know I keep on saying this, but this is also like Tumor, right? The first section of Cain is all those female characters. That's and right. a lot of people came for him, you know, about like, you know, um, is he exploiting, uh, you know, uh, the, uh, the tension between black male and black female relationships, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So uh, just another way that I see you connecting to that. But I'm really into this idea of the way that black women um, have just made magic out of mayhem all yeah. the time. Yeah, and I, I think, you know, I, I'm thinking of stuff that June Jordan talked about with like Phyllis Wheatley about like how, you know, when we talk, when we we should really reconsider how we think about Phyllis Wheatley's poems when yeah. we think, you know, that literally she's like parodying and performing for them. And just the extraordinary act yeah. <laughs> that it is that she could even write poetry <laughs> while being a slave um, right. and, and, you, and reconsider how we, you know, um, how good we think her work is when we think about that. And I'm thinking of, you know, County Cullen saying, you know, um, how odd, how strange it is to bid a, uh, to give a black person voice and bid them to sing. Yes. Um, yeah. So what bid you to sing, my dear brother? What bid you to yeah. sing?
2: Yeah. Yeah. Wow. I don't know. Now, that is a really deep question. As Carolyn Rogers would say, that is deep. That's a, that's a deep <laughs> question on that one. So, um, yeah. And it is singing, you know, and that's how I almost see myself as singing, you know, and. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think it, you know the Freda Compton really kind of tells that when, when the first thing I start with is my mama, you know. Yeah. And I think in some ways my mother, you know, that's the starting point of what has um, bid me to see. You know, in some ways, it's like it, for me gave like, me goosies, I,
1: my brother. That's <laughs> nice because you know my mom died when I was eight, so that so that, that punched me, my dear brother. Seriously, yeah. that's that's nice. I'm sorry to interrupt. Keep on going. No, no, no. I'm glad you did.
2: I'm glad you did. Mm. Thank you. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, no, I'm, I'm, uh, because that's why I want to hear too, is I wanted to ask you about your influences, you know, as well, Mm -hmm. you know, Mm -hmm. um, I'll just quickly say, because I do want to hear about your influences actually. So I'll just quickly say, you know, I just think it, it starts with my, my mother. And in some ways I see a lot of her voice, and the voice of, uh, and the voices of what I write and mm-hmm. create, you know, in that way. And I think that um, there are lots of ways in which that takes place, you know, that, mm-hmm. um, but her voice is certainly not a, you know, it's, it's not a singular thing, you know, mm-hmm. <laughs> it's, it's, a, it's right? a very expansive, rich, complex um, thing there, you know, and I think in many ways, my work attempts to kind of embody that. You know, as well, you know, so nice. so that's my biggest part of, of what bid me to sing. But the other mm-hmm. thing is, is like I literally I always say I write as if my very livelihood, my very mm-hmm. livelihood depends mm-hmm. upon it. And that right. and it and that's the other thing that I think bids me to sing. My my hood, I think, depends upon not just me, but all of us, you know, um, mm-hmm. you know, being able to speak. Um, mm-hmm. And um, help to kind of create a much richer, fuller sense of yes. what um, Black, you know, community and culture actually is, you know. And so I feel like, you know, in some ways, um, you know, I always say I'm a Black writer. Not, mm-hmm. You know, I'm not that person like Mary mm-hmm. Evans and others. You know, I always mm-hmm. say I'm a Black writer. I yep. don't say I'm an American writer or I'm this or I'm just a writer. Mm-hmm. I don't try to mm-hmm. avoid being a Black writer. Um, because for me, that's a big, important part of why I sing as well, you know? And so if I were in prison, I'd be sing, sing prison, you know, (laughs) if I were, you know, and for me, that representing, that representation is just hugely Mm -hmm. important, you know? Um, because, uh, I know I have that part in my novel where I said, there's like a thin line between villains and heroes, you know, Mm -hmm. (laughs) and, Mm -hmm. um. And for me, that's even true. You know, like there's a thin line between my being here now talking about straight out of Compton and my being somewhere else where people are, as usual, or once again, looking down on me. No, I mean,
1: I feel you there. I think about, uh, I tell people all the time, that like just one bad choice away from being either locked down or a bullet in a dome piece. Like I I feel like growing up in the communities that you and I grew up in with those, uh, just a tension in the air like that, just something always about to pop off. Like yeah. I remember being at those summer jams, being at the at the Geter Center. That was our rec center, the ballpark yeah. where everybody hooped and everything, and just always feeling that in the air that it could yeah. they could just pop off right now all the time, and just li- living with that threat of violence. Um, uh, I, I totally totally feel you there. And another thing that I'm really really vibing about is this idea of that you wanted to show. Um, all the different kind of black voices that exist. That's something that I'm very concerned with is kind of problematizing notions of a monolithic blackness. Because my whole thing was like my brother and like y'all generation was so about keeping it real, keeping Mm. it real, keep it real. And Mm. so one of the things that I, uh, my work deals with is like, that's a meta narrative that I inherited from y'all. And I often think to myself, but then what happens when I'm not that black dude? I can't be the way that, like the way that I performed blackness wasn't the way that y'all thought was black. Yeah. And so then like that ends up part of my uh, kind of um, what I'm trying to do with my work as well as that expansion of what yeah. we think a black voice is or what we think black poetry is or black meaning making strategies are. So that's something else that I vibe with you all, man. And uh, another Thank thing you. that I want yeah, to say, Doug, so I'm him. so
2: grateful to you for that, too. You know, right. Mm-hmm. And it's like I feel like I feel so good. I know I'm from a older generation, but, you know, hearing you say that, I, you know, I'm thrilled to know that like we are leaving the fate of uh, all of ourselves and the people that we love in the right hands you know oh, because man. that like you're picking up where I think I stopped short or failed you know in some ways right. to do you know or I'm still working on but not mm-hmm. with the same um nuances and sophistication that I think you have developed for that because you know what we thought was keeping it real of course was not really we in actuality we weren't really keeping it real. You know, we we had to kind of be where you are to be mm. able to keep it real because you know, just to say okay, this is what we think black culture is and kind mm. of impose that meanwhile we were um pushing out other aspects, you know. Mm-hmm. Um is is not a is not a good thing, you know. And so I'm so glad to hear you kind of having that purpose because you know like um I think that that's really, to me, keeping it real is realizing that there are so many um, Mm -hmm. aspects uh, to Black voicing. And, um, you know, we weren't even coming close to doing that Mm -hmm. in the past, years ago. Well, (laughs) what I realize now is just, like, the white America... Like, I I don't think
1: I never understood being as young as I was the the real stakes of the white America that y'all was dealing with until, like, now. I mean, like... um,
2: and that's what I would say, too. It's not necessarily our fault, I should add. No, no, exactly. And that's what I'm yeah. trying to do rhetorically
1: yeah. right now, just as yeah. you were giving me uh, props. I think I also have to say this because I realized that, like, I always tell my partner that I know that my brother hurts in ways that I can't imagine. Mm. And uh, he went to um, uh, Norfolk State. He's the first person in my family to go to college and he didn't make it. But he went to a historically black college and everything. And I just remember just, again, him always saying that uh, his his opposition to whiteness had to be his personhood because whiteness was opposing him at every second, everything he did. And I, and I think that, I got protected from a lot of that. And I think the way, and, and cause I look at the younger black dudes, like I'm a millennial and I look at like generation Z and I look at the way they get to perform their black masculinity impious. Mm-hmm. And my brother used to say that about me as well. <laughs> like the kind of black mm-hmm. dude that I get to be like, he's like, God, it's crazy. You yeah. get to be like this. And so yeah. I look at the young cats, my students, the young brothers, and I, and I, and I think a similar thing. And it makes me think of, you know, ta Coates in between the world. and Me. he, he mm-hmm. talks about, you know, talking to Samari and saying that, you know, like, um, I want uh, I want to give you everything I know from my path while also knowing that you can't be the same kind of black dude I was. That's right. Then it won't work for you. You know what I mean? Right. Um, right. And so I try to have that much room in my imagination for blackness. And it's good to know that you do as well. Yeah. Yeah. Um, One of the things that I do want to, uh, before, um, and I know you want to holla at me and I feel like I didn't holla at you for a long time, but I also kind of want to get at this, uh, uh, something that I I laugh at with people out here and see if, if you, uh, if you got a similar thing because you're from the Midwest, so of course you get to the Bloods and Crips, of course, because you can't write about uh, West Coast without it, especially at right. the time. But what I always talk about with us being from the Midwest, man, I'm from the land of GDs versus VLS. Like, who, who, what's the hard gang in you Like, wasn't that the rivalry in your hood? Like, everybody I knew was stacking it on the boss. Like, you know yeah, what I'm saying? And yeah. talking about, let me get my vows. Is that the? Was that y'all hood too? That uh, was. Uh, GDs. That,
2: yeah, that was. Yeah, that thing. Yep, yeah, absolutely, gangster disciples that was that was it and um Mm -hmm. and then of course that was you know for us like for me I'm two hours away from Chicago right so when we went to Chicago back in our day it was all about talking about Cabrini Green you know yes the uh, the PJs yes you know and 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 all the hoods in Chicago that way Mm -hmm. and uh you know and, and we'd have the stories of you know uh chicago gangsters kind of passing through decatur yes because they like, would come to you know. drop the work off
1: that's what right, always happened right. like in, in anderson they'd be like man man we heard some detroit dudes came in town man and then everybody <laughs> be all shook and everything Well so <laughs> is decatur that kind of like kind of smaller town that to we're like y'all kind of look up to the the big cities and everything like y'all y'all gangsters is that's how y'all was it, too? Is.
2: it was always for us it was always chicago and if mm-hmm. you said where you were from, like, if we say we're hey, we from Decatur, you know, everybody mm. just be like, yeah, that's Chicago, right? You know, so they <laughs> already associated us with Chicago anyway. Weirdly, though, we had a lot of people in Decatur that also had like an East St. Louis, St. Louis connection, you oh, know, word. because we had mm-hmm. people from Decatur that were coming from like, I don't know, Brownsville, Tennessee, or from the South and mm-hmm. whatever. And uh, and and through that, too, so, you know, through that, we had some people in Decatur that, that I think... Uh, you know, like uh, would be teased that they sound a little country. And, you mm-hmm. know, and this <laughs> yep. and that. but if you were like hood or hood limb, so to speak, you mm-hmm. were in Chicago. You were associated with being Chicago, you know, whatever the reasons were. I think, you know, probably because of the, 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 uh, the kind of racial divides too, you know, mm-hmm. that Chicago is always fed into, you mm-hmm. know, in that way. But yeah, that, that was it for us. Absolutely. You know, for me in Decatur, though, we didn't really have. I don't. We had. How I wouldn't say we. While we had like violence and things like that, and certainly a lot of um, police um, brutality and prejudice and and mm-hmm. all those kinds of things, we didn't necessarily. We probably didn't have really like gangsters, you know, in Decatur, mm. except for what was obvious, like people coming through and kind of like wrecking up the city a little bit, and right, you know, and, out. and, and uh, yeah, turning their profits and you know, mm-hmm. and then jetting back out or whatever. So we didn't have necessarily a lot of that. So for me, most of it was through, like, thinking about Chicago. Mm-hmm.
1: Nice. That <laughs> makes sense. Because I was thinking, because, I mean, whenever I, like, the way that I made the Bloods and Crips make sense in my head, I was like, oh, this is just like the GDs and the Vice Lords. Okay, I yeah. get it. I get yeah. it. I get it. And then and yeah. then it, like, it. so I was wondering if that was a touch base for you as well.
2: Yeah. But now I'm going to ask you your influences, because I had read, like, I like I was impressed. I know I read with Nate Mackey talking about like alliteration, for example. And, so, hey, and I
1: love that you said that you said Nathaniel Mackey's name, like y'all homies. So like, I would just bow down was, to him.
2: Yeah, I know. But right.
1: I would just bow down to him. So for you to just calmly say, you know, when I was hanging out with Nate Mackey, like you just, <laughs> you, you just flexed on me a little bit, my brother. Oh, Let no. me feel your muscle. Let no, me feel no. your muscle. I never hung out with <laughs> Nate Mackey,
2: although I would love to. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but, <laughs> That's but dope, I, I love I, will him. Say, I know he's talked a lot about, um, you know, just from what I know Nate Mackey, he's talked a lot about, like, power of illusion. Yes, yes, yes. Something that I like, you can probably tell from my work, too, that I also Mm -hmm. dig illusion, you know. But I know Nate Mackey can really give a a, a wonderful sort of theory about why that works and what Mm -hmm. about it that works so well. But so I'm just kind of curious, too. I wanted to ask you, what are your influences and what are the um, sort of um, devices, if if you will, or the things that you um, most appreciate um, for whatever reason? you know?
1: Um, so for influences for me, I mean, um, whenever I talk about testify, I always talk about the, um, the Nas is illmatic and ready to die, like really, really, really mattered to me. Mm-hmm. But then I think also, like, I remember when I read a portrait of an artist as a young man by Joyce, you know, and I, and I remember thinking to myself, like that I could do this for Anderson is what mm-hmm. I thought to myself, is that like, I could do the coming of age. Like I remember being in class and, you know, I was, uh, uh, I've always kind of thought that I was, was going to be a writer you know not all the way like I didn't know what kind of writer but kind of knew I was going to be in the arts and new and writing so I remember like being in a big lecture hall at ASU and like them talking about um, a portrait and me thinking to myself that I could make a Bill Dung's about coming of age as what I was calling in my head and myself a white black boy and, and, I, and I thought that I could like be able to do that justice and so I remember thinking that so then you know um, it was kind of coddling together my kind of romantic, um, influences, like the first, um, not black poets that I end up loving was the romantics like Shelley and Keats and such. Um, so then it was kind of taking, a, a speaker who has that kind of, uh, kind of tender worldview and then dropping them into, uh, 1983 when I'm born black America then, you know what I mean? And, uh, that, <laughs> and so then you kind of get what testify, um, is, um, literally the first, you know, first words of the text, um, you better rap, like, yeah. My brother and everybody was spitting all yeah. the time. Like e- yeah. everybody had bars, everybody, you know, like everybody, even me, you know, hit them with like just corny rhymes. Like my name is Dougie Doug, you know, I gets paid Ricardo <laughs> at my side. So, you know, we got it made, you know, like just like r- little You're rhymes. Like, five, oh dude. no, that. No, I said that often. I said that when I was a little kid all the time, I made that up years ago. <laughs> um, but yeah. And so I I think that was the main thing, you know, um, yeah. I wanted to be able to, um, Tell a story. What I realized is I didn't see at the time a black dude who was like the way that I was in the stuff that I was reading. So, you know, it was one of those things like the Tody Morrison adage, you know, uh, write the novel that you want to read, you know, yeah. like it was Uh, that was part of it. And then, you know, I did want I wanted to show my version of that America like we had, we had, we had heard it, you know, from the rappers, we had heard it from, you know, like Juice and Boys in the Hood and Minister Society and, and et cetera, et cetera. Um, and I wanted to show my version. And, and I think also those films matter times a thousand too. Mm-hmm. Um, like, you know, like when I they agree. cooking up the rock and Minister Society, I was like, oh shit, yeah. here we go. And like, I had seen that at the crib, you know what I'm saying? Uh, um, well, not like at my auntie crib, but places i would be with my dad and my bro and stuff so i would seen yeah. people cook up the work but like i remember when that started and just even the, and honestly i thought about thinking uh pivoting to your work you know like that's that's the world i felt dropped into like at the beginning of Minnesota society when you're like right. oh they cooking up the work right now right, right now yeah. right here yeah. um and so um i think those were my big things and then my dad is um Kind of a larger than life figure in Anderson, like not only because of the drug game, um, but just like he's like he's a really big dude and a storyteller and just like um, just all the quotables in the world. Like my dad, like if my dad was on here, like I talk a whole bunch and I try not to talk that much. <laughs> and I imagine with you being a teacher like that, you you get your talk on, too. If my dad yeah. was on here, none of us could get a word in my daddy. Wow. <laughs> and stories, and just like like uh, one of the lines in one of my poems, uh, uh, he he'd be like, "Back up six dick links." Like my dad just says stuff like that all the time, just like natural, just like poetic with language. So, and then like a whole family of storytellers, like that's uh, that was that was cultural capital. Can you tell a good story? Can you kick a good rhyme? And you know, when folks think got money, when folks ain't got um, other ways of getting stature in the community, can you fight? Can you hoop? Can you sing? Can you rap? Uh, are you a good storyteller? Can you play cards? Are you dope at dice? These were all the cultural capitals. So like I was around people who that's how they got their worth in their community. And Absolutely. since I was around grown folks all the time, I was a little kid who just was listening, you know, cause every time I talk, shut up, stay out of grown folks business. Yeah. And, you know, so <laughs> <laughs> I'm just, I'm listening to all the stories and you know, that's how, I, cause my brother's 12 years older than me. Um, And then my mom died when I I was eight. My dad did a bid. So I was just around grown folks with my auntie and stuff all all the time. And so I'm just grabbing it, grabbing it. So those are mine, I would say.
2: Wow. Yeah, wow. Well, I'm glad. I'm so glad to hear that. I'm glad I asked that question because, (laughs) you know, and the more I hear it, like I said, the more we talk, I'm like, we have so much in common in some way, Mm. you know, Mm. because my second novel Five Days of Bleeding starts out with, you know, I'm the DJ, he's the rapper, you know. And as you were kind of just talking about, you know, the, mm-hmm. the rap part of that, you know, I was like, yeah, that that I could totally see that. And for me, I mean, I actually grew up sort of, you know, I was that shy, quiet kid. Mm-hmm. I think, you know, writing, creative writing um, really sort of taught me how to talk, you know, and got me to talk, you know, in that way. That's and really so good that that's the the uh I think the beauty of the the writing is that I grew with it too you know it was it was you know like you heard yourself on the page on. and then that helped you hear yourself in real life that's right that's right I you know, like that it was, like, it was a voice I had to get out of my body you know some kind of way um and I think the the writing helped me to to do that you know but hearing you you know, talk about your influences. And, and I could, you know, that's what I said. I'm looking forward to reading testify because I know mm-hmm. I can feel that, um, how our families have influenced us in many ways, you know? Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, no.
1: Too. And then for the second book, um, trouble funk, um, uh, yeah. um, that one, I totally, uh, and that one's not going to come out until 23. I just had uh, t- uh, contracted it out, but, um, for that one, you know, uh, vibing with you about the DJ thing, like I'm the son of a DJ. And so, you know, my father spun from like 77 to like the early eighties. And so what I did for that one is each uh, poem is titled off of their song that he liked to spin. And so it's a narrative of my parents getting together. And so after writing in a post-confessional vein with testify, you know, using that lyric, I so much, I felt so exposed, you know, I mean, think about, um, So, you know, we we're we're displaying very similar aspects of black America. And, but then like, I'm using a lyric. I, so people, you know, yes, of course know that like there's distance between the speaker and the poet always, a lot of people don't know it all, all the way, but most people do. Right. But still people like were so like coming for me with the questions and it just was a lot. So for the next project, you know, I wanted a little bit more narrative space. So moving to the third person, like third person omniscient POV really, uh, but it gave me a lot of freedom. And for that book, I'd say the influence is like Rita Dove's like Thomas and Bula of her, like talking about like her, her grandparents getting together. Um, so it's just me. I, I think of it as kind of a prequel to test, uh, to testify. And that one, um, uh, Trouble Funk uh, is the go-go band from D.C., you know, and so yeah. their first song, uh, the song, uh, the first poem is Let's Get Small, which is, you know, their biggest single. Um, so, like, again, that was my daddy jams. And um, he, he was before uh, everybody could uh, uh, scratch his big uh, claim to fame is he's always like, Man, when I DJed, it was about <laughs> song selection. You know, how I can look at any room and tell you what song they need to get everybody dancing. I can just look and see it. You know, that's what kind of that's what kind of storyteller my dad is. And also he cusses like every other word. (laughs) No, but it it is a whole different thing. You know what I mean? Like like versus like, can you cut really well or, or can you mix and can you scratch? Can you beat juggle, et cetera, beat match, et cetera, et cetera. Like it was all about can you bring the tunes to get this room? this particular yeah. room ready to dance. And yeah. I guess for some reason, my father had a really innate talent at that. Very wow. innate.
2: Yeah. He, I was thinking he's probably shaking his head right now at uh, sort of <laughs> what turntableism and DJing has come to in this day and age. <laughs> yeah. Oh, no, right. All you got to do,
1: all you need is a good computer and good software. <laughs> if, if You I got don't... Pro Tools and Logic. Yeah. You don't that's need much skills, much skills that's at that's all, much skills at all that's anymore. That's You need money right. now, you yeah. know?
2: Yeah. But the yeah.
1: technology was always the thing, you know, like like all the hip hop documentaries say, if that blackout in New York doesn't happen and everybody can't steal the materials during right. the blackout.
2: Right. Hip hop
1: might it. not be the same. Like, you That's know,
2: true. <laughs> That's true. I told you. Yeah. Oh, goodness. And, um, but you said you had other things to ask me, my brother. Yeah, was I, son, did. I did. So influences. I wanted to also ask you how the Midwest you know, Mm -hmm. growing up in the Midwest, how that impacted you as a writer. Mm -hmm. And, you know, if you you want to talk about that, because I know for me growing up in Decatur in the Midwest, you know, Mm -hmm. that certainly affected me a lot. And, Mm -hmm. you know, we talked about, you know, I know I mentioned when I got to LA and Compton and all that, I still Mm -hmm. saw the metaphoric space as opposed to even the physical, you Mm -hmm. know, And, and in some ways I was still writing to the, the, the metaphoricity of everything in some senses. And I don't say metaphor as if to say that there's not truth there, but mm-hmm. just, you know, the fact that there are a lot of things that are a part of that, that, um, mm-hmm. you know, belong to that. Um, so I, can you talk a little bit about like how the Midwest has maybe impacted yes. you as a writer? No, no, that's writer? dope.
1: I always say like uh, Anderson is a character in the book um, that it, it's literally, you know, I'm thinking about, um, like uh, Winesville, you know, by uh, uh, Anderson. I'm thinking um, of, of tumor, of course, with Sparta, Georgia. Uh, and, and and other texts were like locality. And then, you know, Frost's old work. Again, I have my dissertation in my head. So I'm thinking of all those kind of uh, works that influenced Kane as well. And so I really did want it to be like, you know, people have said I'm a poet of place. Um, and, and, it, and it felt like that with that. Um, so much of me coming up is basketball, factories, and cornfields and black softball tournaments. My auntie played softball all over the Midwest and -hmm. and those black softball tournaments. um, uh, We went many, many places all around. Matter of fact, she didn't play uh, one in Decatur before. Mm -hmm. Uh, (laughs) um, and, And so I think, you know, the things that matter the most in me becoming me, that's like outside of our family circumstances is the crack epidemic, of course, and then the other thing is literally uh, the factories leaving the Midwest. I think those lead to the economic uh, situation that my family's in. There's, as you know, a huge black uh, middle class that was created because of the factories that just got hit in the chest uh, once uh, NAFTA got signed. So when you go NAFTA and you go to crime bill, Clinton's crime bill, like th- those years from Yo Novel from 92 to like 96, are so crucial in like, what happens in the Midwest and like what happens to my family. Like I think one of the things that I wish I did better at Testify is that like I really, I'm not gonna say that I indict uh, the speaker's father and brother about the crack epidemic, but I do hold them really, really to task about their addiction problems. And what I realized is that I could have like looked up and seen how systemic that was and how they're pawns in a system. You know what I mean? And, and I wish that I would have had more empathy uh, towards that. And I think, you know, like, for instance, like, how did how did crack get to the Midwest? You know, of course, it was because the gang violence got so bad in L.A. that they start thinking of where their cousins <laughs> at so that they can ship it out and all this stuff like that. And I and I didn't do that kind of stuff. Or Why was it so hard for my daddy and everybody in the hood and my brother and them to find a job? That they parents had, you know, because their parents all had access to Delco Remy, to Guy Lamb, to General Motors, etc. You go to high school, you get a six figure job, you know, like this was like possible for them. And so that Mm -hmm. landscape, my father and brother saw gone and then had to still kind of make meaning. And then you got this most addictive drug in the world right in front of you. And as somebody, you know, who has a very addictive personality, like quitting cigarettes was the hardest thing I ever did. Like if I see somebody with a cigarette right now, I'll be like. And I haven't smoked in years, but I'll be like, so I always tell my students, I know for a fact that if I was alive when crack was hitting, I'd probably still be all messed up and wouldn't have no teeth right now because that's my personality. Mm -hmm. So I think one of the things when I think about the Midwest is like, I just really wanted to portray how much those factories leaving, the residual racism that we sleep on because of how close the Midwest is to the South. Um, I mean, like in Indiana, there's all those lynching parties all throughout the, you know, 20th century, mm-hmm. like all the way up until the 1950s, pretty mm-hmm. much. And so I wanted to show the racism. I wanted to show what happens when the factories go. And I wanted to show, you know, uh, how crack, how crack like because on TV, we learned how crack hits a big city, right? Uh, a, a large metropolitan area. Yeah. But it's different when crack hits somewhere where there's 70,000 people or 50,000 people. Yes, and is. so that's what it looked like in like because then you could have these little kingpins like my dad was able to be you know and, and like these little people who would just think of something you know like now we use terms like bando and like trap house and stuff but that was innovation to the game when my dad did that like wasn't nobody like yo we about to have like you know the welfare uh, uh mom that we can trap out of here and yeah. pay her rent was nobody mm-hmm. on that yet you know what <laughs> I mean and so in yeah. in the small neighborhood those things like really like blow up. So I think that's what I was trying to do is again trying to reinforce the beautiful idea that you talked about from the get-go that it, it's all one hood.
2: Yeah. Yeah. Yeah.
1: So and and I think with devices uh that go back with that, because of our error, man, I care about Sonic. Sonic Sonic devices so much, man. I care about rhyme so much. Um I, I unabashedly em, 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 embrace rhyme. I think uh a lot of poets of my generation were, you know, um uh, some of them eschewed rhyme and wanted to push it away and everything, you know? And like, no, I'm more like thinking like old school hip hop, like when Rockin would say, how many rhymes can I get in one line? Like I want I want to make it sing. I want it to lip off the page. Um, so I think Sonic stuff and then I love the line. Um, I think I would never, not never, but I'm leery to write prose because I love the meaning making possibilities of the line. I love how many ways that I can play with your reading experience uh, through lineation. So I think my favorite device is as far as uh, getting our Black voice down on the page is like rhyme in the line, rhyme in the line, and then working against each other.
2: One day with more time, I'll have to ask you how best to teach rhyme, you know, Mm. Mm because that is a hard thing for me, I think, trying to teach Uh, my students, for example, you know, they, most of them want to use rhyme, but almost sometimes for the wrong reasons, you know, and, Mm -hmm. and trying to teach them how to kind of still uh, use rhyme without sacrificing, you Mm -hmm. know, that complexity or sacrificing sort of their uh, ability to really dig deep into the thing that they're trying to explore. You know, that to me sometimes is, is, is hard. It's not uh, Mm -hmm. easy to do, you know, but, um, but I but I also want I to think say it's un- moving
1: for rhyme for rhyme's sake is what I always tell them, like never just for rhyme's sake. And then I always talk about that there should be a relationship between the rhyme words that reinforces the content. And if uh, there's not some kind of relationship between the rhyme words that like does uh, like kind of work for content building verticality, then right. like are you just being performative of showing me that you can think of the next rhyme? Yeah. So that's, that's just a, a little preview of something that yeah. I would say.
2: Thank to you. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. Now look, I'm I'm going to have to take note of that one. So. <laughs> uh, yeah.
1: You seen I was scribbling the whole time you was writing, my dear brother. Whole time. I know
2: I'm a bad student, <laughs> but, you know, <laughs> um, but I was also going to say too, you know, I share your love for the sonic. I'm, I'm totally mm-hmm. with you on that. And, and I think even as I have been writing prose, uh, my later prose has been, I think thinking more in terms of integrating rhyme in that prose, you know, and cadence and, and thinking about rhythm and mm-hmm. things that flow because of the sound and, mm-hmm. and all of that, you know, so I'm totally with you, I think on, on that as a, as a device, you know, but um, um, I wanted to also ask you, what are you working on? You mentioned your second book and you already have the contract for it. What else are you doing? Um creatively and and so on, so. Um, yeah, no, I, I want a fellowship
1: um, to go to Chiapas, Mexico to uh, do some writing. So I'm thinking about trying to uh, figure out uh, possibly translating a local poet there in, in Chiapas, mm-hmm. if I can find one. Um, I've been really interested in, um, I've been trying to just work on my Spanish a little bit more of, of translating the work. Uh, uh, and I have the English next to me as well of Octavio Paz. Um, Yeah. And just like really what it's been doing to my imagination, like um, I've always wished that I would have learned another language way better and leaned into it. And I didn't. Mm -hmm. And being out on the West Coast, it almost forces you to just like when I was in Arizona, just because of the community and the people who I hang out with and try to surround myself with. Um, And so, yeah. And so this opportunity is really, you know, I've been doing my Duolingo now for two hundred and and like thirty nine days, something crazy (laughs) like that, you know, and I know. that that's not enough, but I'm still just trying to uh, immerse myself around Spanish. And it's really been uh, changing my writing a little bit. And I've been thinking about like uh, writers like Jay Wright, who like totally, totally embraced Spanish all through his Mm -hmm. mythologies. And I remember uh, a writer asked him, "Um, uh, uh, it seems as though you have so many uh, uh, wide ranging influences in your work. And it seems like you're trying to connect all of them. And he goes, I'm just trying to connect what was already connected, but we forgot. Yeah. That connection. And so I kind of feel like that I'm doing that as well with that. Um, especially like with my last name has like, you know, Spanish roots just like yours, you know, to where like I wonder, you know, what kind of if there's an Afro-Latinx uh uh kind of a uh, person in my family that we sleeping on. Like my dad's always hardcore to be like, we're manual, not Manuel. Well. And then I'm oh. like, but you said your daddy from New York. Yeah. <laughs> You don't think no Dominicans or Puerto Ricans and we name Manuel. Like, come on, brother. Uh, But (laughs) you know what I mean? So like I'm very those are the kind of things uh, uh, currently like moving forward that I'm interested in what happened. And then, of course, Trouble Funk and and getting that out into the world. Like it's a blessing. But like also, you know, that's a great title, too.
2: By the way, well it's the name on. of
1: that band you know and that's why it's so perfect you know yeah, like yeah. you know just like just like straight out of compton that's a great yeah. one too <laughs> <You know>? yeah. <laughs> but yeah same way the power going back to the power of illusion that we were yeah. talking about you know um, yeah. right. and what i like about illusion is it's a shortcut you know like and, mm-hmm. it, and i think it's it dope is. for black folks you know what i'm saying because like it's like this uh we don't get cultural uh, well god our culture is the capital But like when we can go deep cuts and kind of wink at each other like this through these kind of things, like with Trouble Funk, that like if you if you in the culture, you know that that's a go-go band and you're like, I see you, I see you. And then, you know, like with you back then, like if like, you know, you and like everybody know about Straight out of Compton now, but back then, like you got to be like in a culture. And then like you was like, yeah, I see you. So, yeah, yeah, you're right. I
2: mean, it's signifying and it's reviving at the same time. You know, I love how also illusion can kind of bring back what people too easily forgot, you know, and, mm. in that sense, too. You know, it's something I think I really appreciate. But that that sounds wonderful. I mean, I'm looking forward to I'm going to have to get my signed copy of Trouble Funk and testify. So nice. <laughs>
1: But what I'm about you, them, though, homie? What yeah, you working yeah. on? I
2: mean, what's the new I, I mean, is there going to be a
1: big novel? It seems like you're killing it in the novella form. That's your favorite form. Are, 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 you, going to, are you going to are you about to hit us with one of those big, expansive works? What's up? What, what you yeah, got? No, what you got brewing you know, up?
2: The thing about the novel are certainly passing up. First of all, I have to admit, I realize I've probably been taking two, three, four novels to write the same novel in some ways but just sort of (laughs) (laughs) switching the characters. It's like, I'm still trying to get something out that I haven't, uh, I I think I haven't fully exhausted, you know, in Mm -hmm. some senses. I know when I did Straight Outta Compton, I was like, okay, I do, you know, there are those great moments where I do center a black woman's voice, but I felt Mm -hmm. like I could have done that better and more. So then Mm -hmm. I did Five Days of Bleeding as my effort to kind of center the black woman's voice, you know, and it was my check that out.
1: I need to check that one out because I'm yeah. very interested, especially hearing you say that.
2: Yeah, that my second novel, Five Days of Bleeding, it was my idea on the cover design. I actually mm. told the um, press that I wanted this very sort of Afrocentric black woman looking down on the Statue of Liberty, you know, mm. and um You know, and I and I was trying. I'm just going
1: to look at the cover while you're talking. Go ahead. Just so you'll know why my eyes are wondering.
2: I was trying to really center the voice of a black woman there. And even the end of the novel. Oh, that is powerful. You know, Uh. I've got the blues of a fallen teardrop and and Mm -hmm. Zuzu girls kind of like tell them who I am. And uh, she goes around spitting in men's faces. And uh, all of this stuff that, you know, I kind of like put there in five days of bleeding. But also to what we talked about, it still has for me, it's more aggressive and foregrounding music. Um, You know, a lot of like Mm -hmm. my subtitles and that are titles from songs, you know, like My Funny Valentine or, you know, what more is there to say or, you know, whatever. Mm -hmm. And so um, so I think in some ways I'm still moving toward more music toward uh, centering um, more of these Black voices that I think have been rendered invisible, um, mm. coming from imperfect, you know, places, obviously, in the same way in which I have come from imperfect places, you know, yes. and so, you know, trying to really work on those voices. Uh, I remember a critique of Straight Outta Compton by one of my reviewers was like, well, sometimes the characters talk like the, uh, PhD candidate or something that Cruz did, <laughs> you know? Right. And, you know, and I didn't take it personal because I'm like, hey, you know, these people need to realize, like, you know, Black people talk in a myriad of, uh, you know, different ways. We're all over in all these wonderful ways, you know? Mm-hmm. And I actually thought, I said, well, that's, that's good at least that they're starting to think about the fact that my character can't just talk in this one kind of vacuum, you know? Again,
1: expanding the notion of what Black voices are. And I think your text does that so dopely, man. So dopely. Thank you.
2: Thank you. So I'm trying to move, continue to move out in those directions. And that's what, you know, hearing you talk about, like, what you're trying to do in some ways to to kind of redefine realness, so to speak. Mm -hmm. You know, if I can Mm -hmm. put that in Janet Mock terms, you know, kind of Mm -hmm. like what you're doing to kind of redefine realness. I mm-hmm. think is really important, and I think that's that's what I'm hoping to do as I move into my later works as well as to kind of like be that 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 partner in crime for you. You know, oh, no, no you like, know, OG. Oh, I'm going to be that. following
1: your dough. No, I'm <laughs> going to be following
2: the dough you open, homie. The dough you opened. You know, open. you're already there. It sounds like so. You know, I need to like get with it and and kind of like you know uh, follow your trailblazing steps. Um, Oh, on that man. one. And, and I'm so appreciative of that. Like hearing you say that, like that's what I'm hoping to continue to kind of move in that direction as well, you know, with mm-hmm. the voices of my characters. So I'm working on, I'm working on a piece of Afrofuturism that I think yes. will be a novel, yes. you know? Yes. No, that's you know, so,
1: that. it, and like, that's so hot right now. And I feel as though they like, Somebody like you who have been in this scene and, and and seen it since it's been like you know festering and growing since you know not, and you know it was happening even before Octa- uh, Octavia Butler, but like like you know again West Coast say what though? No, let me just have my, <laughs> another Cali moment, another Cali moment. Um, I'm so but,
2: jealous.
1: <laughs> yeah, but then at the same time, what's it going to look like in your hand? Because as we've noticed, like I mean the 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 rap novella and the and the uh, novel of place. Um, from the black voice was so different in your hands. What's yeah. Afrofuturism going to look like right. in your hands? Right. Like, give me a little. Give me a little a preview. What's it going to look like in your hands?
2: I, you know that I'm still trying to find my way on. I don't know for sure yet. Like a lot of it is so much discovery right now. I think for me, mm-hmm. like in terms of what that's going to look like or what I really want it to look like in that sense. I actually started this by almost having uh like uh 20 different beginnings like i'm almost looping beginnings um, No, that's the, so sick with it because that's so fucking
1: hip hop yeah. no yeah. that's sick with it yeah. yeah and then it's almost like an MC uh uh struggling to find a beat to jump in yeah. Yeah. and that's how the story
2: starts. Yes that's that's what I'm doing. That that's Brother, right that's now dope. where I am I'm like looping these different beginnings you know to the novel. And then I'm I'm working on sort of on the side, but to be mixed in, I'm mm-hmm. working on what I call say your name pieces, that where I'm yes. taking uh, sort of the tragic, violent things that have happened to Black women, such as like Pearly Golden or Corinne mm-hmm. Gaines or mm-hmm. uh, Kanika Jenkins in Chicago, or um, you know I can go on and on. Latasha Harlins, obviously, you know All the way, yeah. Yeah, I'm taking all the way back to even something like Latasha Harlan's. I'm taking these mm-hmm. sort of uh tragic, violent, true stories and kind of reworking them, you know. Um, and then mm. my plan is to mix those into this afro-futuristic novel. Uh what that's gonna look like <laughs> when it's all said and done, I can't even tell you that yet because it's it's still in that chaotic. You know, mm-hmm. kind of stays like kind of like what we do as DJs. Right. All yeah. Of the, you know, no, that's you, definitely
1: it's a curating. It's a yeah. curating process. Yeah. It's a um, it's a it's a selection process. All all the above. All the mm-hmm.
2: above. Yeah. Well, that
1: work sounds amazing. So that's and, my and,
2: project with that. Yeah.
1: I mean, the scope scope of that. It's going yeah. to be so awesome. And I think that juxtaposition of the kind of uh, the insert of kind of the masculinity of hip hop, but then having that kind of uh, cut in and, mm-hmm. and slashed by the centering of the Black women voices of the kind of, you know, the violence that has happened and the always and um, already precarity of the Black female body that, you know, we can go all the way back throughout the whole history. Yeah. God, you about <laughs> to punch him in the face, brother. you going to punch yeah. him in the face.
2: Thank you. Yeah, you know, and I was gonna say second, my second thing, which is more of an ambition, I think, than a project, but an important ambition is that I'm still working on that. I'm in the process still of the many ways in which I can remix myself, you know. Mm. And so, because I was, you know, I always growing up in, in the culture I grew up in, as I told you, and going to parties, and i would hear like the remix version of club niveaux why you treat me so bad or yes. <laughs> you know 11 inch remix of slow down or something Oh, wow and, yeah. yeah and i was just like how can i do that i want to be able to do that like i want to be able to put out something and then re and then version it you know or mm-hmm. remix it and do something different and i still don't think anybody else has done that because of the Sort of expectations of the publishing industry and uh, academia sort of hold on some of us as writers, Mm -hmm. you know, and uh, everyone worried about. And this idea
1: of ownership. Right. Because like blackness has never been on that. Like I'm thinking of the jazz and blues standards. Right. Like it didn't matter that I played a Ricardo song as long as I played it. Dope has dug. You know, like that's why there's so many versions of all these standards where they're like it was remixed through me making it my own. But we still knew that, like you wrote the song, and that it was all good. And I think this idea of like owning our material from this kind of white Western notion is, mm-hmm. I think, uh, standing in a way of that kind of stuff. Because I mean, think how suspicious yeah. they were of the remix when it first came out. When yeah. we sample them, they'd be like, "Well, you didn't make hip hop. Isn't music has now <laughs> the whole world is now listening to it, right? It's not music because it's just derivative. But now yeah. they all want to think that it's, you know." So I, I think that that's Amen. even more black. That what you're doing, like talk about how you're maintaining the black aesthetic and expanding yeah. it. That's black yeah. as hell. That's yeah. black
2: as hell, man. Thank you, thank you. I'm hoping, you know, I'm gonna try to do something dope out of that whole thing because that's that's what it feels like to me. But you, mm-hmm. you know, I can't always say that. What you know, how something feels to me is how it's gonna translate, you know, yeah. to everybody. Never else. know.
1: Sometimes <laughs> the magic works. Sometimes it doesn't. That's what I right. say all the time. <laughs> but
2: it, it feels black to me. It feels very much committed to my culture you know, in that way, trying to do that. So we'll see. But that's exactly Mm -hmm. what I'm working on. I can, you know, I'm imagining when it's all said and done, when I'm like six feet under or whatever, Mm -hmm. someone pulls out these different stories and novels and novellas and pieces I've done, that it's almost like looking at a discography of me too, where it's like remixes, live cuts, um something that was done a cappella in the studio and almost yeah. seen fun, you know where they're getting that kind of look
1: <laughs> that's you know? a cool way to think of it has a discography yeah, yeah. instead of has like a catalog of your work that's yeah. cool bro yeah. <laughs> much you. respect to you much respect yeah. To you
2: yeah thank yeah. you much hey much love for you you know yeah. and and it's i'd like you know i read um in one of your i think you were doing an interview with someone and you were mm-hmm. talking about your classes and, and what you mm. tell your students and, and some of the advice you give them. And and I one of the things I really like that I did write down is going to stay with me, too, to kind of continue to emphasize. You noted that you tell your students to kind of ask the question, how can you help? You know, yeah. and yeah. Uh, and I and even though that in some ways it's just so, you know, straightforward and you kind of mm-hmm. make it plain, so to speak, in, in a Malcolm X like mm-hmm. way, I think, mm-hmm. that, you know, I don't know. I don't know that we do that enough, right? To kind of get mm-hmm. people to think about, you know, like how can they help?
1: You know. Yeah. I mean, I'm still in that for one of my dear mentors and I and I'm I'm glad that you um are grabbing that and I want it to go everywhere. It's one of the things that uh, the great poet Sarah Vatt poses to all of her students all the time. She says, mm-hmm. like, instead of thinking about like how can I I make a whole bunch of money how can I do this how can I help and like if you asked her children what do you want to be when they grow up they'll look at you and be like no do you mean how do I want to help I want to help with animals I want to help with this and so my partner and I talk about it all the time they're like if we like you know acculturated students and, and children in that fashion what kind of world would this be instead of making money or what you want to be how are you gonna help out because Loa knows we need people
0: helping Thanks to Ricardo Cortez-Cruz and Douglas Manuel for joining us this week. Fiction Transmission is made by FC2 with generous support from the Jarvis and Constance Doctorow Family Foundation. This episode was produced by Brian Kahn and engineered by Joelle Thibodeau. The story was read by me, Mia Ellis, and recorded by Cy Marshall at Mosaic Audio. You can find FC2 online at fc2.org, on Twitter at FCTWO, and on Instagram at Fiction Collective 2. Please join us next week for another story and a new conversation.